who pushed the outhouse over the hill? A man gathered his five sons together and uh, lined them up and asked, who pushed the outhouse over the hill? The silence. He said, I ask you again, who pushed the outhouse over the hill? Silence. So, he said, let me tell you a story about our first president, George Washington. When George Washington was a young man, he chopped down a cherry tree in his father's orchard. His father asked, missing the tree, who chopped down my cherry tree? And George Washington said, Father, I cannot tell a lie. I chopped down your cherry tree. Is George Washington's father, so impressed with his honesty and integrity, forego or forewent punishment? So I asked again, who pushed the outhouse over the hill? And then the youngest son at the end of the line stepped forward and said, Father, I cannot tell a lie. It was I who pushed the outhouse over the hill. The man then took off his belt and beat the child senseless. At the end of which, the child said, But father, you said George Washington's father forwent punishment for his integrity. Yes, son, but George Washington's father wasn't in the tree when it was chopped down. That, my friends, if you haven't heard it, is who pushed the outhouse over the hill. That was my grandfather's favorite joke, or at least one of them. And I'm telling it to you on recording as I drive to his wake. He had led a long life, a full one, serving in the U.S. Navy in, at the tail end of World War II and into the Korean conflict, serving as ship's physician and a recruit processor after having attended medical school through a Navy program. He would go on to have five children, four stepchildren, nine grandchildren, another eight step-grandchildren, and great-grandchildren seven or eight of whom at least he was able to meet. And I've lost count of the step sign by this point in the message. We'll miss you, Grandpa, and this episode is dedicated to your memory. Taylor, I would contend that all D&D is soft because of this abstraction of hit points. I mean, you need to be playing a game like Harn Master or Riddle of Steel where there are graphic wounds or Warhammer Fantasy where, yes, there are wound points, but you take graphic wounds and you're permanently maimed. You can get infection. Harn Master, you can get infection. Twilight 2000, effectively... Players are killed by two bullets of a small caliber weapon or one bullet of a big caliber weapon, or they're really, really seriously injured. Um, yeah, D&D is pretty soft, I would say. There's magical healing. I mean, play a game like Twilight 2000 where there's no healing, magical healing.
You gotta heal like you do in the real world. Warhammer Fantasy. I have wanted to play Warhammer Fantasy roleplay forever. I credit the abundance of 3.5 to be the reason I got into D&D instead, truthfully. When, when I was playing the most, at the time I really got into it, DMing two, three games a week, 3.5 was in full swing and the D20 boom made me pretty much ignore most other games. Uh, checking the game's history, uh, this would have been during the Green Ronin uh, 2E era of Warhammer fantasy roleplay. Mordheim was my baby. I loved Mordheim. Always had trouble trying to talk people into playing with me. Leagues, campaigns, that war player versus RPer divide. Who knows? If uh, Warhammer RP had been bigger at that point, I wonder if I would have played it instead. I'm not very big on percentile systems. Um, either the calculations are too granular, the turn then takes an hour figuring out whether you're at 43% or 45% based on wind speed direction, relative humidity of an unladen swallow, or it becomes so generic, uh, it's windy, minus 20%, it's a big target, plus 40%, that you might as well just roll an X in 6. Um, that's it, I have been trying to watch the uh, Warhammer fantasy roleplay that you have been playing with Kevin over on Dungeon Musings YouTube and uh, getting a feel for the game because uh, I know that as a group uh, you and that group will represent the rules and the spirit of the system well. Uh, who knows, maybe you will change my mind. Thinking about magical healing, I think it depends on the addition. Magical healing does exist of course, you know, cleric, but how generous are you uh, Carl one, but listeners in general, not just Carl, uh, with magical healing. In downtime, can a cleric pray for five cure lights and then call it a day? It seems to imply that this wasn't done by the original crew, you know, the, Ga the Garys and the Daves of the world, but that would be the first thing I would think about. You have your character stable, fighter, fighter, cleric, and then I would use my cleric's downtime to heal whichever fighter was behind. Of course, you need to play the cleric occasionally to get the spell, but why not have a stable of four clerics? Cleric, 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 cleric. I like playing clerics. Potions. How often do your players come across potions? I tend to make them rare myself. Uh, they can be found in a dungeon and crafting. Crafting takes time and resources. Most of my players, historically, would just rather go on adventures instead. But anyway, moreover, dear listeners, how generous are you with healing, and does it make sense to have a cleric perform healing magic in downtime in addition to in the dungeon? Here's something interesting, too, that I think makes D&D a little soft, is that there is no reduction of skill as you become injured, right? So in a lot of games, as you get injured, you take penalties for being able to function Harn Master is a good one for every like wound level you take of your grievous gashy wound. You have a minus X, depending on the wound level, to your abilities. So it's a right, it's a battle of attrition of your skill and ability. Whereas in, in D D, I can't think of any D D game where unless the condition dictates like 3.5 as a stream of conditions as does Pathfinder. 5e has a lot less. You're really not affected in, in battle as you lose your health. Ah, uh, yes. The classic death spiral. I do love me some injury tables. 
uh, old homebrews that I've run, uh, some skill-based new school nonsense that my wayward self built and played between 4E driving me out of the fold and then my discovery of a new fold in the OSR, all had injury tables. That said, I understand why D&D doesn't do it. If you start to lose, you keep losing, and the game is lethal. Of course, other games are more lethal, but a character of almost any level in an old-school D&D game can still be whittled down and around by persistent adversaries, or they can always be affected by save versus effects. So I can kind of understand why they kept the hit point abstraction. So what comes to mind is uh, Tim Cask mentioning that hit points are not meat. Hit points are not actual injuries. Hit points are narrowly dodging. Uh, hit points are parrying the blow with a heavy with a heavy hand. And while that doesn't fit with exactly how people interpret them, especially with cure spells, that seems to imply that healing an injury, not healing your muscle memory or the sweat off of your brow, but the general idea that he was conveying is that you're not actually hurt or down until you hit zero. And that but when you're worn down, then that's when you get the fatal or otherwise critical blow, uh, as opposed to those other systems where each blow has the chance to do it. Um, again, I kind of, like I said, I prefer injury tables. I think that fits better, but I understand why D&D didn't do it. So that death spiral and the lose once, keep losing. So that's it. If anyone's interested, uh, and checked out my Weapons, Wits, and Wizardry homebrew when you get hit. Two words. Injury table. Thank you, Carl, for calling in. It is a treat, always a treat, to hear your informed perspective. Hey, Taylor, this is Joe from Biggest Geekus. I just got through listening to all of your horror um, in, your, in your game episodes, and I like how you broke them down into those three phases. I also have to say that um, while with movies I find it very difficult to be scared because most of them are boring and stupid, especially the found footage that's usually just, um, they have those jump scares that are more annoying than anything else. But in a game with the proper uh, makeup of uh, other players and a good DM, you can give in a little bit, just enough. So that even though if it's not even though it's not precisely fear, it's close enough that uh, it makes for an enjoyable and memorable game session. Uh, but yes, thanks for that breakdown and have a good one. Technically four: shock, scare, dip, duck, dive, dodge. Wait, no, shock, scare, loathing, and revulsion. I just had a double episode for that last one. In terms of memorable session, yes, 1,000 times. At the end of the day, that's what I go for, at least. I want my players to have a good time, I want myself to have a good time, and I want to talk about it to people at work who do not care, but whose coffee has not finished percolating yet. Jump scares? Agreed. Not horror. I feel like that's its own genre, really. It's a sort of slasher-type movie, or the surprise-type movie. It produces the shock response, like you're describing, but on its own, doesn't do much. To speak to found footage, found footage actually gives me a headache, literally. Specifically, the part where they shake the camera or jostle it around, I physically cannot watch it. Um, I'm kind of glad that that faded, or I thought it had faded. 
uh, I haven't watched a new movie for an adult's audience in... How old are my kids again? Yeah. Thank you for calling in. Uh, I'm glad to hear it worked for you. That is the horror podcast, and I'm curious to see uh, if there's a way you can use it to scare Randy right on back in-game. Delve on. Yo, Taylor, awesome episode on not being nice to your PCs. Yeah, so I frame Gygax as an adversarial referee. You frame him as a referee who is an adversary. Who's to say? (laughs) But I would say that your examples of the kobolds changing the way they lay out traps based on what the adventurers have done, and then a dungeon master inventing a monster, in this case the boule, to eat horses because horses are OP, y'all, are two different things. The kobolds are adapting to the world. They're adapting to what the players have done. They're learning. Uh, The party probably has a chance or should figure out that, yeah, the traps will be different because they've seen us before. They're going to not be the same traps. Inventing a monster to eat horses that comes from underground as a surprise. The kobolds are an example of a referee who is an adversary. The boule is an example of an adversarial referee. In part, I think, it's on how it's introduced. So if you're in an area and it wasn't there, but then you go to a new unexplored area and it is, that would probably be fine. Uh, But coming out of nowhere to eat your horses, uh, I'm just trouncing between town and in the dungeon, um, and then then boom, land shark. That's probably not fair. Humorously, when I made my horses be OP comment, I did have a real person in mind with whom I used to game, uh, until his wife decided she didn't like me. That happens a lot. Uh, But anyway, that person wasn't Gary, uh, and we used to tease this guy all the time about whipping out the nerf hammer for various class abilities. In In that regard, I think you were spot on. Uh, this dude, uh, good guy, but he would introduce ways for mounts to disappear that players had no control over. That is a good example of adversarial referee behavior. At one point, uh, this is a story from a friend, I was not in this game, but uh, that old group used to refer to certain types of enemies as, quote, it orcs. Um, the, this was based off of a campaign from my anti-horse fellow. He was trying to coax the party in a particular direction, but they weren't having it. Uh, it got to a point he had a group of orcs he thought that they could never beat, uh, and he was throwing them at him to push him in a certain direction. But one player, uh, this was back in the 3E era, uh, he had managed to use a couple splat books put, to put together a super cleric. The orcs just couldn't take him down, and so eventually the ref said, quote, it. Four more orcs come in, spawning enemies like a video game, forcing the party into a retreat. Clerics were nerfed in the following campaign. Uh, that bit made it into my personal DMG. You know, that DMG that everyone who runs games slowly collates in their brains but doesn't necessarily ever write down. But here's mine. Never put a challenge in front of the party that assumes they will back down, retreat, or otherwise give up. Because they won't. In terms of the bule, again, I think it depends on how it's introduced, but generally, yeah, 
having it show up out of nowhere to counter something that the players are doing, that's how companies like GW sell miniature lines. And just to lay my credentials out there so you don't think I'm soft, I have TPK'd many, many parties. Uh, I've pit them against monsters and challenges that are way out of their league. But that's all just uh, a process of the world that exists. That's not me inventing monsters just to counterbalance one aspect of one player or one part of the party like i that's that's to me that's what's adversarial is when you see something like i don't like horses in my game instead of saying there are no horses in my game you just invent a monster that'll sneak up and eat your horses that that I don't know. It seems very petulant to me. That's not about inventing fresh new challenges. That's about taking away what the players have and probably enjoy. I don't know. That's it for me. Oh, yeah. If the world isn't dangerous, what's the point? The players are just along for the ride until they roll dice next. 100% with you on that one. Though, thinking about it, in order to make a dangerous world, or to open stuff up for the players to learn... New things have to come around, right? New monsters have to appear. Uh, something that Jason C. of Nerds Variety RPG Cast actually puts very succinctly in his call-in. Hey Taylor, Jason here. Great episode on Don't Be Nice. And I agree with you. Just be challenging the players is not adversarial play. You know, if you have a player that gets his super-duper plate armor and can't be hit by anything, introducing the rust monster isn't being a dick. It's challenging the player to think outside the box to deal with the rust monster. So I, th there is a style that is adversarial without a question, but challenging the players, like you say, makes them better players. So I 100% support your message. And that was Jason C. of Nerds Variety Cast, as usual, putting things in perfect perspective, uh, and not just because he agrees with me. Introducing something that nullifies an advantage isn't necessarily being adversarial, so much as it depends on how that new thing is introduced. To use the Rust Monster as an example, Scenario A. The party turns a corner and, boom, giant red insect with feelers, save or lose your armor. Compare this to scenario B. The party descends to a new level. Around them are signs of oxidation. Green copper, red rust on iron bars. Suspiciously, the bars are bored open in areas. And then, in the distance, a strange creature, slowly molesting a banded chest, its carapace the color of the rust on the walls. Scenario A, that's an adversarial DM trying to get rid of a plate armor that he wasn't comfortable having given out in the first place. Uh, that's four more orcs coming in. Scenario B, where the players are, as Joe, you put it, given the opportunity to make a decision based on information available and given the opportunity to learn, that's DM as adversary. So, again, thank you both, Joe and Jason, for your call-ins, as I think this is my favorite answer so far, as is my favorite answer to most questions. It depends. Taylor, just listen to your Don't uh, Be Nice podcast. I pretty much agree all the way around. I think you nailed it. That was kind of funny. I have a friend, too, that seemed to love to kill horses. 
I don't know what it is. I got another friend who doesn't even like them in the game, even though he doesn't kill them, and he excludes them from his 13 days game, which is really weird. A society that doesn't have any horses, but I guess maybe it's possible. I don't really know, but I mean, you're starting to really nail the podcast thing. I'm really enjoying it. Um, yeah, I'm all down with not being nice. I'm kind of the I'm kind of the killer DM at Cabin Con, so our little get together yearly. So I don't try too hard to be nice. Take care. First, to answer your question about alignment, yes, the character sheet did have a box with alignment on it, but did I, as the ref, look at that box? No. I used alignment as a way to shape conflict and confluence in the wider world, and then allowed the party to figure out where to go. That said, the next iteration of that character sheet totally going to have Joe's hatch triangle on it. I probably should have called this into your show. But regardless, regarding horses, I think horses introduce a few elements to the game that a lot of refs aren't ready for. One, they make movement on over maps much faster. Most games have horses move twice as fast as the party, so the ref has to, first, expand their mapped area and prepare content double to make sure that the party doesn't run off the map. Second, it offers a tactical change. Horses don't go into the dungeon. So, you by necessity are doing stuff outside the dungeon if you're using horses. Pitched battles, outdoor skirmishes, all of which take up more real estate on the table. So folks using minis have a hard time keeping track without resorting to playing on the floor, naval war games style. And when thinking about dungeon delving, if you're down in the dirt and that horse didn't come with you, where are you hitching it? Uh, this adds an element of logistics, which OSR games solve with henchmen, but which kind of fell off the radar with 3rd edition. So, knowing that, and knowing not all refs are comfortable with the wargame implications, distance, speed, uh, a whole nother party member effectively when fighting, and knowing that not all referees are equipped to handle a fast party in the overworld, it sort of makes sense that there's a common hate for horses. My two coppers. Regarding being a killer DM, uh, I've been called a killer DM before, but uh, at the time my players were surfers. Not sure what uh, that implies. Okay, Taylor, it's Randy again. I want to clarify that. I am not necessarily a killer DM, though they, my buddies call me that. Uh, truthfully, in the last several years, there's a game, 13 Age, that I mentioned. I've played this game for four or five years and have yet to kill a single-player character. So maybe I am too nice. But uh, anyway, just wanted to throw that in there. Take care, bud. Keep up the Nope. Too late. Killer DM. I'm just ribbing you a little bit there, but thank you for calling in. Uh, thank you for the praise and the encouragement and the contribution to the conversation. Um, it keeps me going, uh, knowing that we're having a discussion in the bigger community and knowing that I'm getting better. Um, when it comes to killing player characters, if they win on their own, I think that's fair. Uh, being a killer DM, that's one category of adversarial ref. That's the ref who wants to win by making the players lose. If he doesn't kill his players, then he's he's done something wrong. But if you don't kill your players, maybe you're not being soft. Maybe they're just good at overcoming stuff that you're throwing at them. Under that circumstance, that's a win. If the game is lethal but no one is dying, maybe that means the players are getting better. In that situation, personally, I'd be grateful for having good players, and then probably hit them with a belay. 
Delve on, my man. Oh, Taylor, listening to you talk about adversarial GMs and neutral arbiters and, and not being too nice, I sometimes think the, the old school come in for some unfair criticism, basically because the people doing the criticising have, have missed the joke. And the joke is that I don't believe that adversarial DMs are that common what what people hear is a group of DMs kind of laughing and joking about TPKs and interestingly killing players rather than killing characters and then they somehow take that too seriously and believe that that's that's what this kind of what the old school are setting out to do so I think it's a just a misunderstanding really and I think it goes the other way too, of course. If you're what, a nice DM, is is that like a, a more lenient DM? You use the example of the, the 300 orcs and whether to put them in front of your players. I don't know if that's um, something you wouldn't do in a more modern game or not. If you follow... CR values and, and, and challenge rating well challenge ratings and you balance encounters I guess you wouldn't but um, I don't play like that so I wonder if I'm not doing that style of play justice or maybe uh, maybe there's a joke that I don't get with the nice DMs anyway take care mate and I'll catch you later Come to think of it, true story, I have never actually played under an adversarial, truly adversarial DM. I did have a DM who booted me from a group for complaining in character about a puzzle room, which promptly made me not get into character for years thereafter, at least not until I knew the people I was playing with extremely well to ensure that they could separate reality from roleplay, but... I've never faced a DM going out of their way to attempt to beat the party, at least not in a home campaign. I've run into that one guy with the horses. I uh, played with him in a league, but I don't know if that particularly counts. Every challenge I've faced from home game DMs are challenges that were placed there because the DM thought it would be fun to play out and a challenge to overcome. So I think you're right. I think that guy is far less common than people give him credit for being. Thinking about soft versus hard referees, that's a good question. I'll have to sneak into one of your games and uh, help provide that unbiased critique. I kid, but it does probably come down to playstyle. If you and your players keep coming back, keep being challenged, and keep being engaged, I would argue that the DM, uh, be it you or someone else in this case, is doing something right. Now, whether it's the right way to play, trademark, or not, I can't vouch for that. But at the end of the day, I think being happy is more important than being right, which is why I'm still married, and which is how I'm still running games. Taking context from your message, I think that's the side of the fence you're on too. That, 
I think is a good thing to hear. And my message back is uh, keep up the good gaming. Daniel from Manscaped. I'm only about halfway through your Don't Be Nice episode. Uh, but uh, no surprise, I agree. I, I do think that's interesting, especially in the uh, the way of people talking about Gygax, where they point out things. And Right, I like how you're saying it. Right, as adversary, it makes more sense. The GM's job, or referee's job, or DM's job, or however you want to say it, is to challenge the players, in my mind. So if you cannot... Uh, keep changing the the battlefield to make it more interesting for them it will become boring and i think that as long as you are then refereeing as we say in a fair neutral way when the uh stuff happens then i think you're being fair and you're a referee and you're not being adversarial you're being an adversary which i'm a fan of gygax i think gets a bad rap for writing tomb of horrors among other things, but still, Tomb of Horrors, that's definitely an adversarial module. But, that in mind, that's the design. That was a tournament module. You weren't supposed to win. You scored points by getting deeper into the place. At the same time, uh, Dave Arneson, I've read, accused Gary in the early days of being Monty Hall giving out entirely too much treasure and entirely too many magic items. Gary allegedly replied, to paraphrase, they can always be taken away. I guess that may be part of where the dispute comes from. No one likes having their plus five holy avenger disenchanted by surprise trap, but at the same time, if that was your third magic sword this week, and you know there's probably another one somewhere down in the deeps, it may not be that bad. It's like ammunition for adventuring, just another resource to manage. That would be curious. Uh, you know, a game in which magic items were so common as to make them disposable? It would be interesting to see how players approached it. My old group, of course, would just hoard them, but it would be cool to see how non-adversarial players would handle it. Good prompt, Daniel. Uh, thank you for calling in. And based on that, and based on what some of the stuff I think Carl was saying earlier, I'm curious as to what the wider audience and listeners think. So, for next time, speak to challenging your players. I'd like to challenge you, listeners. Was Gygax adversary or adversarial? And why? Was Dave adversary or adversarial? Again, why? Knowing he was that treasure miser by comparison. And what? To you callers and listeners, what is the difference? What is the line between adversary and adversarial? Intent? Presentation? I'm curious what you have to say. I'm curious to hear back. And until next time, in between thinking about it and calling in, delve on.
Theme music used for the Clerics Wearing Mail podcast is adapted from Pursuing Darkness by artist X Take Rux, released into the public domain and made available on freemusicarchive.org. Sound effects used in the making of this product retrieved from mixkit.co, used under the Mixkit sound effects free license, or from soundj.com and used in accordance with the soundj.com terms of use. Segments recorded within a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device in conjunction with local vehicular safety legislation. The Clerics Wearing Mail podcast is an independently owned and operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This license, which is kind of like Creative Commons, except licensing. Clerics Wearing Mail does not ascribe to nor endorse views or opinions expressed by Collins, guests, or even the host unless you think they're awesome, and thus does not assume any liability regarding the consumption or distribution of this podcast. By listening to the Clerics Wearing Mail podcast, you agree to the provided term. Parties with questions regarding these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to reach out to Clerics Wearing Mail at the prescribed methods provided on the Clerics Wearing Mail blog. Parties dissatisfied with these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to go suck an egg.